All right, while everybody's finding their seat, let's uh, review a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, a little confusion on the Monday night class. Uh, first of all, Chafer Seminary, uh, the semester starts on January the 25th, which is in uh, a couple of weeks, a week from this coming Monday, because I was supposed to have been in Kiev. I taught the first class earlier, pre-recorded it, so that the students could watch it on the appropriate time and get started. And so the next class will be on February the 1st. Now, if you are just a member of West Houston Bible Church and uh, uh, you're happy just coming up here and sitting and watching or live streaming, that's fine. You can do that. That's, that's no cost. But if you want to be able to access uh, some of the other materials or you want to see the video afterward because you can't watch it at that particular time or live stream it, then you, because of the fact that you're here at West Houston Bible Church, you can uh, sign up and audit the course. Uh, You can audit, how many is it, Barb, two a semester? Two courses a semester, and all you pay is the the registration or sign-up fee or something like that, which is about $30, and the first time it's an additional $20, so it costs you about $50 just to sign up, and after that... Then um, you got that those administrative costs taken care of, but that's not fifty dollars a course. That's just fifty for the semester, and then you can you can watch uh, and you have if you audit, then you have access to the videos and you have access to uh, all, uh, every, everything else. Now we're putting the handouts and stuff up on the DBM website, so you can go to the news page and the left-hand column, or you can see the announcement about the course and click on the appropriate links, and you can get there and uh, look at those things. So uh, that should take care of any of those questions. Also, we need to continue to announce that the annual congregational meeting is February 14th, immediately following the morning worship service. And if you're not a member, we always encourage you to be here just so you know what's going on in terms of the business of the church. And uh, and so that takes care of that announcement. Chafer Conference, we need volunteers. That's March 8th through 10th. And then also, if you're interested in the Israel trip, we still don't have any details. Israel is still closed to international travel and tourism, but they're expecting to have, uh, they're hoping for 75 or 80 percent uh, of the people getting the vaccine by the early April, and then they're hoping that herd immunity and everything, they can, um, they, can, they can open up. So far, we don't know exactly what the requirements are going to be, but it seems like they're going to be, like most other countries, just asking for a negative PCR test uh, before, before you fly. And I think that's, that's about it. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, 
because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to do this just to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. A fellowship is the concept of walking intimately with the Lord. That intimate rapport is broken when we sin, so it's necessary to confess sin, to be realigned to the righteousness of God, to adjust to the righteousness of God. When we confess sin and silent prayer to God, instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together, go to the throne of grace, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful for your grace, for your goodness, for the fact that we are alive another day, another week, when we can learn about you, when we can serve you, when we can learn to put your plan, your purposes, your will over our plans and purposes, understanding that our lives really fit within a much more significant, even a cosmic framework as we are living testimonies to your grace and your goodness, to things that the angels long to look into, to this broad conflict, this rebellion that started in eternity past with Satan's rebellion leading a revolt against your authority. And Father, we know that that authority issue is fundamental to our, our whole Christian life, learning to submit to your authority, to walk with you, to depend upon you and trust you. So, Father, as we continue our study in Second Peter tonight, we pray that you would open up our eyes to understand that which we are studying, to see its significance uh, for our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Second Peter. Second Peter obviously comes right after First Peter. And Second Peter chapter two. Now, Second Peter chapter two starts off with this warning that there were past tense in the Old Testament period in Israel there were false prophets among the people. The people being the people of Israel. Even as so, a point of comparison, even as there will be future tense in the future, from Peter's perspective. There will be false teachers among you. And I made the point that it's teachers here, not prophets, because prophets were an Old Testament office. Now, it's true in the New Testament, there are New Testament prophets, but even by this time, and Second Peter is written not long before Peter died in the middle part of the 60s, and it's not long before those temporary gifts, those gifts of apostle and prophet and wisdom and knowledge and and tongues and interpretation of tongues, those temporary sign gifts were going to be abolished, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. And so Peter doesn't even mention that because the main focus in the church age is teaching the Word, teaching the Word over and over again. In fact, if we studied through the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. The emphasis is on teaching, teaching, giving instruction, 
uh, going through the Word, explaining it, helping people to understand what the text means. And what I have found is if you understand the text, me- what the text means and we make that clear enough, that God the Holy Spirit makes it pretty clear what we're supposed to do about it, and you don't need to spend a whole lot of time on application. Most people are like Gideon, and they want to avoid the obvious application and come up with some other meaning. But that's because we we are inherently rebellious in our sin nature. And so there's this warning that these false teachers will come up among you. So they haven't hit this area, this congregation yet, as I studied, but they are. there already were by that time false teachers that had been showing up here, there, and around followers of the Apostle Paul teaching that you had to be uh, circumcised in order to be saved or you had to be circumcised and started to advance in the Christian life. That's what Galatians was all about. So false teachers were not unknown, but they were not yet infiltrating the, this congregation or these congregations that Peter is addressing, but they will. And we're going to see a lot of comparisons with Jude, which is coming up, comes up at the end of the New Testament between Third John and Revelation. And Jude is writing basically to the same area, and he's telling them that these false teachers are already there. So there, that's that's the slight difference between the two, and there's a lot of similarities between the two, uh, which we'll see somewhat tonight as we look at verses four and five of this chapter. So those who are false teachers. Now, there's a lot of debate over the next phrase, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. But I think it's very clear that they're denying the Lord who bought them in two senses. Number one, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. He died for everyone. He was the substitute lamb of God for the sins of the world and all those in it. And some of these who will become false teachers based on what Paul warns the Ephesian church about in, in, in Acts chapter 20, where he says, even among you will, will come up these false teachers, and you are the elders from these various, the pastors from these various congregations in and around Ephesus. And so there are some who uh, will get into these destructive heresies that are truly believers. They are saved. They have been uh, pastors. Some some have had association with other apostles, and yet they get seduced and deceived by these destructive heresies. I'm going to come back and talk some more about that after we get through this this next little section, because I think it's important just to see some of the the crazy stuff that's going on today, but I don't like to dwell a lot on those things. We're just going to get a few little snapshots. Verse 2, he said, and many will follow their destructive ways. That is, they're going to be led astray by these um, uh, these false teachers, and they're going to leave the way of truth, which means it's blasphemed, which means it is dealt with in a lack of respect. And the way of truth is then, um, you know, it is rejected. And then we come to verse 3, which says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. So the main theme here is deception and destruction that goes through in as a result of false teaching. What you believe is important. 
What we believe shapes our lives. And we can, if we believe wrong things, it will lead to destruction in our spiritual life. It may lead to eternal condemnation because we reject the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And it may lead to just a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It may lead to a lot of temporal suffering and heartache because we make bad decisions, foolish decisions. And as a result of that, we go through divine discipline in this life. But when we read verse 3, that's the backdrop for what we're going to get into in verse 4. Note that Peter says, by covetousness, that means they're basically greedy for something. They're greedy for fame. They're greedy for power. They're greedy for money. Uh, They will exploit you with deceptive words. And then he makes an important statement. He says, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle. Just because you look out there in this world and you see people and you think, why doesn't God just strike them dead with lightning? Why isn't God judging them? We don't see things that are going on in those people's lives. We just see a little bit. We have no idea how God is bringing judgment into their lives, but he is. Even in the, at this time, even when it looks like they are being, you know, in our culture, we measure success so much by material things. And yet what's going on in their soul and may be just incredibly destructive. And so Peter reminds his readers that divine judgment and discipline has not been idle. God is not going to let anyone get away with anything Uh, and there will be consequences. They won't lose their salvation if they are saved, but they will not necessarily get away. That's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. There are those who will receive rewards, and those will enter yet as through fire, and they will not have anything, but they are still saved. And then it says, and their destruction does not slumber. So that's the background because when we get into the verse that we're looking at now, uh, verse 4, it starts with that word for, F-O-R, which is explanatory. So he's explaining how God's justice works in bringing judgment on those using Old Testament examples. And the first example he looks at in verse 4, which is connected to verse 5, actually it's connected through this whole section all the way down to verse 10, the verse 4 is about the angels that are imprisoned in deep darkness. Now we've gone through most of this material recently. We did it in the context of the sub-series, the special series we did on the angelic rebellion. However, those are series are listed in one set of lessons, and so we need to go through this material again in the context of of Second Peter and in the Second Peter series. So, if you are sitting here, you're thinking, "Wow, we just did this like a month ago." But if you're somebody who starts to listen to this series and you don't take time to go to the Angelic Revolt series and you just go from uh, the previous lesson, uh, 35, I think it was, to this lesson, which is 36, then you're gonna, you, you will not have heard this. So think in terms of 
the people who are listening to this other than uh, live students right now. So this is about God's judgment on these angels, the angels that left their first estate, as Jude puts it in, in his description of this. These angels who were the sons of God who left their place in heaven. Uh, these are fallen angels who came to the earth, took on human bodies so they could uh, experience sexual relations with uh, human women for the purpose of destroying the genetic purity of the human race. And uh, they have a severe punishment. They are imprisoned in chains of darkness, deep darkness, as we'll see, and this is their punishment. That's the, the point of this, is looking at that in terms of, of, of their judgment, that God is not idle in bringing about his judgment. So in Second Peter 2, 4, we read, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, actually it's not hell, it's not Sheol, it's not Hades, it's Tartarus, but cast them into Tartarus and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, I want you to look at something here as we begin this. The first thing I want you to notice is that this verse begins with the word for, F-O-R, which translates a Greek word, gar, which always introduces some sort of an explanation or it gives the reason or cause for something. And it is a conjunction. And if you're part of the Sesame Street generation, which was sometime after I came up, they learned all about the conjunction-junction, which joined things together. That's what conjunctions do. So you have words like for, you have words like because, can be a conjunction. You can look at words like and or but, and they all have specific roles. Now, I want you to just look at your Bibles, and if you've got a pen or highlighter, there's something that needs to be pointed out, and I want you to pay attention to this that this for introduces a lengthy sentence. Now, if you're, you have a New King James Version, one of the things you will notice is that they have inserted a semicolon at the end of verse 4, at the end of verse 5, at the end of verse 6, at the, and at the end of uh, uh, verse four, 7 just goes right into verse 8 without uh, any punctuation. And then at the end of verse 8, there's this long line that's not a a hyphen. It's longer. It's called an M-dash. And it's it's closing out a parenthesis. So it's telling us that somehow verse 9 is picking up a slightly different line or different part of of the structure of what Peter is saying. And what we need to note is that the period that ends the sentence that begins with the 4 in verse 4 is halfway through verse 10. It reads, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. And look at what comes after authority. That's a period. What we have here is a long sentence that we need to take a few minutes to understand just the grammatical structure because 
it, it, it helps us to understand Peter's thinking as he's laying this, laying this out for us. If you have your pen or pencil or highlighter, what you should, what you should mark, circle, underline, box, however you want to mark it, starts, verse 4 starts with a 4. The second word is going to be an if, so we're going to have to take some time to talk about the if clause because this whole thing from verse 4 down through the middle of verse 10 is a conditional sentence. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I want you to notice how they're connected, for, and then you have the first part of this condition. But it's really multiple conditions that are added one upon another. Uh, the, and they're each condition, each one is an example, another example of God judging and also uh, providing um, deliverance, okay? So verse 5 starts with an and. You want to highlight, circle, box, that, however you want to mark it off. You, you need to see that, that and because it connects 5 to 4, so the first example is God did not spare the angels. So we're going to talk about God's judgment on the angels. And the second, he did not spare the ancient world. But we're also told that in spite of his judgment, there's deliverance. And that's with the eight people with Noah. Verse 6 starts with another conjunction, and. So it's giving us a third example. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And then verse 7 begins with another and. This is our third and. And delivered righteous lots. So in the case of Noah, there's grace, and there's not all are condemned, but eight are saved. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, not all are condemned, but uh, Lot and his daughters are saved. And then verse 8 gives us a, a brief description of who uh, Lot was and why he was delivered. And then in verse 9, it, we see the word then. So the, the beginning of the if clause, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and the second part of an if clause is if this, then that. And the then clause, which is the second aspect, comes in verse 9 and the first part of verse 10. So that's our grammatical structure. And the whole part, uh, the point that he is making really comes out in verse 9. If we know that God is judging, that God, his, his judgment is not idle and his destruction does not slumber, what about deliverance? And that's what comes in the second part of the if clause, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So these illustrations are all related to understanding the action of the justice of God for those who are rebels, because that's the issue, is that they have uh, rebelled against the authority of God. And that is why they are coming under under divine judgment. So the four introduces this explanation uh, of verse three, and gives these these four examples. And then Jude provides the same kind of explanation 
in Jude verses 5 through 10. Now, we'll spend a little more time on Jude 5 through 10. The reason we don't mention a chapter is it's only one chapter, so you just mention the verses. And he warns in verses 3 and 4 that there are men who have crept in, ungodly men who deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's similar to those who deny the Lord who bought them in Second Peter 2, 1. And so then Jude reminds his readers of what these different judgments. He talks about the judgment on the, these fallen angels from Genesis 6 in verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, other dreamers who are defiling the flesh, etc. And then he talks about those who are arrogant. Uh, not even Michael is arrogant enough to try to uh, exercise his authority over Satan. So we see in both of these, we'll get there when we get to verse 6 in Second Peter, and that is uh, this issue with Sodom and Gomorrah. And something came across my desk today, uh, my email, that there has been a law passed now by the, by the uh, national legislative body in Canada that and and you know everybody's going to jump to the conclusion well if it happens there it's going to happen here but that's not necessarily so okay it may take a while i think there's certain indications of that but just because certain things have happened there doesn't mean it's going to happen here but it's close and the handwriting's on the wall and in this legislation it is specifically designing uh, designating uh, uh, that that hate speech related to gender or sexual identity or any anything related to that, including homosexuality, same-sex marriage, any any condemnation of that is punishable by by imprisonment, and it's it's specifically designated as as hate speech, and it is specifically stating, uh, and the, the, it was part of the debate that they are going after Christians in the Bible. And that's that's our neighbor to the north, and this is this is coming to maybe to a state or to a nation near you, and we need to be aware that that this is coming. And uh, the harshest thing we've seen coming out of the last few months is that we cannot expect as believers that we're going to be able to live out our lives, especially if you've got another ten, fifteen, twenty years. You're not going to be able to live out your life persecution-free. And I mean persecution from the federal government, state government, maybe city government, and who knows what else is going to happen. And we have to focus on the fact that none of this surprises God. The rapture might occur, but it might not. There have been believers down through the centuries who have given their lives in persecutions. They have stood for the truth and that God has given them the grace and the strength to do so. But we have to strengthen ourselves with the word of God because we do not know just exactly what is coming. But the, the, the changes that are taking place in some of our closest allies is truly sobering, and we need to be aware of that. Okay, so God will bring justice in those cases. He's going to be judging those who oppose the church and those who are opposing these things. And that is what we see here at the beginning of verse 4. The explanation is introduced by the word for, and then we have that little word if. 
if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, that's only the beginning of this lengthy uh, if clause. And the if clause is called a protasis down here in the, uh, I have it written out here in the second, uh, second point. And I always remember it because P-R-O is a prefix that indicates first. And so protasis means it's the first clause. The if clause is usually first. And then you have a then clause, and that's called the apodosis. Now, it starts off here with the if clause, and we have to say a couple of things about it. First of all, that in the Greek New Testament, there are four, although there's only a couple of examples of the fourth kind of of conditional clause, uh, but there are four different ways in which the Greek can express a condition, and each one gives you a little more precision. In English, we just say it one way. We say it with the word if. But in Greek, there's, there's different syntactical structures. There's sometimes there's a different word at the beginning, and sometimes it has to do with the tense of the verb. But I'm not going to get into all of those, all of those details. This is what is called the first-class uh, first condition. Now, in English... We just have one way of saying it, if, and it can mean any of the ways that Greek separates or divides these into these different different nuances. The first-class condition is one that is often misrepresented with the simple phrase of if and it's true, because sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it is assumed to be true for the sake of a, making a, a point or you're illustrating a principle, if, and let's just assume in the case that this is true, then this is what's going to happen, and that would be a first-class condition, but the if clause isn't necessarily true. It's a debater style where you're just setting up certain certain situations and something's assumed to be true uh, for, the sense, uh, for the sake of argument. Now, there's some other ways in which this, the first-class condition can be used, and one of them is it can be pretty close to just a simple condition. Uh, if and it might be this or if and it might be that. So you really have to judge it by context and not just have one sense to it. The second-class condition has the idea, it's a little more precise, we might say, if and we're assuming that this if clause is not true uh, for the sake of argument. It's, um, uh, it's a little more complex than if and it isn't true. It's more along the lines of if and we're assuming that it's not true, but it might be true. And then the third class condition is not if and maybe it's true and maybe it's not. It's if it's more likely to be true, but it might be false. So there's there's shades of meaning in all of this, and so we just have to understand that of the four kinds of if clauses, this is a first-class condition. If, and here it's assumed to be true, that God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, when we look at the context, we know that God did not spare angels when they sinned. So this is a first-class condition. It's a little stronger, and it almost has the idea of sense. Now, if you read the grammars, they'll all tell you don't. Don't say that the first-class condition means sense, but probably in about 25 or 30 percent of its uses, it can have that, that idea. 
uh, th- where you're, you're stating it as a, an absolute true fact, for since God did not spare angels when they sinned, and he did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into Tartarus. So there's your example of God's judgment. And what we see here is the if clause has multiple parts to it. You have one part in verse 4, another part in verse 5. He, for if he did not spare the ancient world. See, the if isn't repeated, but it governs. If and he did not spare the uh, ancient world. Verse 6, if and he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And if he delivered and he did. Uh, righteous lot, all of those are governed by this word up in verse 4, but it's not repeated in 5, 6, 7, or 8. But it sets it up so that verse 9 is the uh, expressing the conclusion. that the, If he, God does all these things, he certainly knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment. So, that sets it up. First example, if God, it's interesting, this is one of the few times that you have God with, a, uh, with an article in front of, of the word God, and that is simply there in order to, I think, establish the fact that grammatically that this is the subject because the word God is a definite uh, it, it is inherently definite to begin with, so the the uh, the article has a different grammatical function. You wouldn't translate it for if the God. Uh, the article is simply there to indicate that is the subject of the sentence. Uh, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and the word there is phidomai, which means to spare something of something, or it's and really sparing someone is to refrain from letting them feel the full consequences of something, or in other words, to deal with them in a lenient manner. And so what this is saying is God did not deal with the angels in a lenient manner. Manner, God let them have it. And with an extremely strong, harsh judgment, uh, reserved in chains of darkness, deep darkness, as, as we're going to see. Now I want you to look at verse for just a minute. It starts off, and did not spare the ancient world. It's the same word. And it has that same idea. He did not treat the ancient world leniently. So that links, that verb, which is not repeated again in this section, that verb connects the events of verse 4, the angels who sinned, with the ancient world, that is the world that was destroyed by water at the time of Noah. So it's telling us that the sin of these angels, this isn't the original rebellion of these angels against God. This is a rebellion of a subset of angels at the time of Noah. Okay, we'll get into all those details uh, in a little bit as we go through this. So God did not spare them. He did not treat them in a lenient manner when they sinned. And this is a, a participle uh, of time. And it, and it says at, at the time they sinned. So this is uh, important that God brings judgment upon these angels when they sinned. Now, why do I say that? 
there's so much stuff that goes on in uh, discussions related to the Genesis 6 episode. And there's a book that came out recently by Tim Chafee, who is a, uh, has his Ph.D. in Old Testament studies, and he does take the view out a uh, view of Genesis six that the sons of God there are fallen angels, uh, but he does some things where he thinks that 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 there is still some some activity among the de- among the fallen angels with taking human wives after the flood. The weakness with that position is what we see right here is that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, when that group sinned. And that was before the flood, not after the flood. So this judgment is upon those angels and that judgment at that time uh, ends before the flood so that there's no post-flood activity by these fallen angels having sexual relations with human women, taking them as wives and then producing the offspring that are described as Nephilim. You can go out on the Internet, and you're going to find all kinds of really wacko stuff about the Nephilim. Don't do it. I don't waste my time with it. It's enough that I know it's there. I don't need to go spend a lot of time looking at this stuff. We've had people in this congregation who've come and gone who have gotten all caught up in all of this stuff, and there's all these theories that these Nephilim are still among us. And they're still walking the earth, and they're going to be instrumental in the rebellion uh, with the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And I can think of a lot of words to describe it, but I'm not going to use them in the pulpit. Uh, that is just the blathering of, of nonsense. It, it's just people wanting to make up their own ideas of Scripture without paying any attention to what the text says. And I've gotten in discussions with some of these people, and they want to say, well, what about, and they go off into all this stuff that just like it's science fiction. I said, well, let's just stay, stick with what the Bible says. And what they want to do is, well, I watch this YouTube video, and I watch that video, and I've seen this, and I've seen that. No, I want to know, let's just stay, stick with what the Bible says. And if you stick with what the Bible says, you're going to realize that you're just wasting your time. And I think Paul said something over in Ephesians 5 about redeeming the time. In other words, don't be a time waster. And that's what that is. So uh, God judges them when they sin. When those events took place, there is a a once-for-all judgment at that particular time. And what did God do? He cast them into Tartarus. Okay, cast them into Tartarus, and we'll have a chart in just a minute. We'll look at that is a uh, section, here we go, section of Sheol. So here is a chart on Sheol as it based on what happens with with Lazarus, who's the beggar, and the rich man. Lazarus is a beggar, he's homeless, and he's always outside the the, uh, home of this wealthy man. And he is out there begging for food, and he's just, uh, but he's a believer. And so when Lazarus died, this isn't the Lazarus who's the brother of Mary and Martha. This is just another Lazarus, another name. So when Lazarus died, he goes to Abraham's bosom, which is where paradise is located prior to the cross. This is where Old Testament saints went. They died, they went to Sheol. 
Sheol has had, at that time had a good place that's paradise and a bad place that is called torments, which was fiery pain. And so this is like being sent to a holding cell. It's not the lake of fire, but it's like you're, you're being sent to the county lockup until your, your trial is completely finished and, and the sentence is applied and then you're sent to prison which would be analogous to the lake of fire. So we have uh, Abraham's bosom on the one side and torments, Tartarus, and the abyss on the other side, three different compartments of Sheol, and they're separated with this impassable barrier. The language of the King James is that there's this great gulf fixed between them. In other words, it can't be, you can't pass it, you can't move it, you can't change it. And we have the the rich man dies and he's in torments and he sees uh, Abraham. Uh, I mean, he sees uh, Lazarus on the other side of Abraham's bosom and he's just begging him, you know, put your hand, your finger in the water, touch it to my tongue. So there's some sort of interim body there uh, that's feeling the pain and the thirst and he sees that that uh, Lazarus could dip his finger in the water, touch it to his tongue, and and then uh, of course Lazarus can't do that. So he wants, he begs Abraham to let Lazarus be resurrected and go back and tell people and warn his brothers. And it's one of the great passages in Scripture because what what Abraham said is if they don't believe the Scripture. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe some guy who came back from the dead. And that is powerful. That that we think, oh, if we if people could just see the miracles that Jesus did, and and could just see that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, then then they would respond to the gospel. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't respond to the gospel. They'd do the same thing that the Pharisees did when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They crucified him. They don't want to know the truth. They are hostile to the truth. So what we have is these three different compartments of Sheol, and the torments is for the unbelievers from all dispensations. Tartarus is where the chains of darkness are for these angels that are confined there. And then the abyss is the area where uh, where. There's confined an army in the abyss. Apollyon is mentioned in Revelation 9 in the fifth seal judgment, and they're on hold waiting to be released with the uh, fifth trumpet judgment in, in uh, Revelation chapter 9. So that's, that helps us understand what Tartarus is. So let me back up here. They, they're cast into Tartarus and the, uh, then it says they're delivered or they're given over to uh, chains of darkness. So they're, the, the word there for chains is a word that could indicate ropes or chains or some sort of, of uh, binding that is there. And darkness is, is not your normal word for darkness, which is skodos, it's zafos, which means a deep, gloomy, impenetrable darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your face, but it's almost tangible. It is just a horrible thing. And it's used in several passages in Second Peter 2.17, a little further down, 
uh, we'll read it. These are wells talking about the false teachers. They're wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So that's talking about their eternal condemnation. So they're going to be in the lake of fire, which is not a fire that is going to bring illumination. It's in deep darkness, can't see anybody, can't talk to anybody, and yet you're going to experience all of the fiery pain of the lake of fire. Jude 6, talking about this same event, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, Zaphos, this deep impenetrable uh, darkness for the judgment of the great day. So they're in Tartarus. And then Jude 13 mentions uh, that these false teachers like raving, raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So that didn't sound like a very pleasant place to be. You're ju- you can't see anything. You can't uh, hear anybody. You're just isolated by this, by this deep, deep darkness. Okay, let's skip past these slides. Merrill Unger describes this passage. Unger was an interesting guy. He, he uh, went to Johns Hopkins. He was a brilliant Old Testament scholar, taught at Dallas Theological Seminary in the late 40s and 50s, 60s, uh, retired early, early 70s. And um, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, biblical demonology in which he said the fallen angels that are bound, that is, these fallen angels here in in 2 Peter 4, those described by Peter and Jude as ostensibly guilty of such enormous wickedness as no longer allowed them to roam the heavenlies with their leader Satan and the other evil angels, but plunge them down to the strictest and severest confinement in Tartarus. This is an extreme punishment at this time. So these angels have done something quite horrible, quite heinous. Second Peter 2.5 connects it back to, as I pointed out already, to the time of Noah by the use of the verb a, a second time. So this judgment on the ancient world is connected to the sin of these angels. Now, this isn't the only time that we find this, this reference. The New Testament clarifies what's going on in Genesis 6. In 1 Peter 3.18, we're going to get the context. We're really focusing on what happens in 3.20. 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he, that is Christ, might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Jesus physically dies on the cross, but his immaterial nature is released from that physical corporal, corporal body. Okay? And he goes somewhere. And he goes... In which, in that spirit, he goes, not the Holy Spirit, but in his, uh, in his spiritual essence, he goes and makes proclamations to the spirits now in prison. Now, there are those who will come along and say, 
well, these spirits in prison, those are the, um, those are the, the Nephilim uh, that were killed during the flood. Or those are the, old, old te- the, the Gentile believers killed during the flood. Nonsense like that. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, you see that, that the, those who are spirits in prison, spirits is often another term that is used for angels, that this is the same group that's described by Peter in Second Peter two four, and it's the same group that's going to be described in Jude uh, verses five and following. So Christ goes and he makes proclamation. He's not witnessing to them. He's not giving them the gospel. He and that's what a lot of people they see. They get a second chance. Jesus is going to tell them and give them the gospel. No, that's not what's happening. Angels don't get saved by the gospel. He is making proclamation about his victory on the cross. He is making a victorious proclamation to them that there that he he has won the strategic victory at the cross. He has defeated Satan and the fallen angels at the cross. And even though there's a time that they are given to continue to attempt to rule things, uh, the, the, the end has been determined and is secure. So these spirits who are now in prison are then described in 1 Peter 3.20, who once were disobedient. So these spirits are described as being disobedient, same as those that are over here in Second Peter 2.4 and in Jude. They were once disobedient when, at the time, this is what that, that word means. According to Greek lexicon, it's a marker of a specific point in time. They, they once were disobedient at the time that the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. There's another verse that goes against this idea that there is some sort of post-flood invasion of demons again, even if it's limited. There's not, because this group of angels are disobedient and their activities are described and limited by this word when, the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah, not after the flood, but in the days of Noah. So you don't have Nephilim grabbing hold of the side of the ark and somehow using it like a life vest in order to survive this massive flood that is on the earth. If you think that, you don't understand the hydrodynamics of the flood, of the earth being covered with that much water. Uh, there would have been super hurricanes. We talk about a class four, class five is bad. These were like class class twenty, and and massive tsunamis, tsunamis that were three, four, five, six hundred feet high, uh, and the ark could handle all of that. We know that because there have been nautical, uh, nautical engineers who have studied. Uh, the hydrodynamics of the flood along with the uh, the, the structure of the ark and, and it's, it, due, due to its dimensions, it would have been able to handle that kind of turbulence. So this happens in the days of Noah. And God is waiting during the construction of the ark. So this is clearly before the flood occurs. And it's in the ark that a few that there's a few that is eight persons are brought safely uh, through the water. 
So 1 Peter 3.20 helps us to clearly understand uh, a a dimension of this judgment that it happens before the flood. It's associated with the uh, ancient world that then perished. That's going to be referred to again when we get over to... um, when we get into the third chapter, that that Peter is going to use the statement in chapter 3, verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. That is, not a, that is a reference to the worldwide flood of Noah. All right, now turn in your Bibles to Jude chapter 6. You ought to be making some notes in your margin so that you can... Uh, Connect First Peter three twenty with Second Peter two four and with Jude six. So in Jude six, Jude is reminding his readers, which are probably the same group that Peter's writing, that God is a God of grace and He saved. Israel in Egypt, but he brought judgment on the Egyptians. He destroyed those who did not believe. So again, he's illustrating the certainty of divine judgment. Even though you may think God is being too lenient and people are getting away with things, we haven't seen the end game yet. Nobody's getting away with anything. Jude 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain or their proper domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains until darkness for the judgment of the great day. So you see the similarities. The word there for domain is the word arche. Now, we've studied this word when we were studying angels, and we talked about principalities and powers, and this is the root word for principalities. A principality is somebody who is first in the pecking order. They're at the top of the food chain. Uh, it, so RK can also refer in a hierarchy to those that are first, those who are at the top, which would mean a leader or a prince or a king. It can refer to that which is first in an order or in a list. And so here it has the idea of their original position, their first position, their position that they began with in heaven. They left their first domain, their first sphere of influence. Well, what was the first sphere of influence for these angels? They were in the heavenlies. They were immaterial spirits. They were serving God, and then they rebelled with Satan. But they're still immaterial spirits. They're still the sons of God. And then they decided to leave that initial domain, that initial uh, immaterial body that they had. And they looked upon the human race. We know that angels watch us. And angels were intrigued by the fact that there were these marriages and this sexual relationship among humans that was not something that was part of angelic experience. And so I believe that they they wanted to experience all of that. So they took on a human body. And it's really interesting because angels take on physical bodies at other times. We talk about uh, Genesis uh, 18 and 19. You have uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ coming with two angels. Uh, Abraham sees them. He's going to prepare them a feast. They come in while he's cooking this feast for them. They're lying down. They're resting. They're sleeping. They're taking a nap. 
when they get up, the food is ready, they eat, they, they have to uh, chew their food, swallow their food, uh, they have to drink, they have to swallow what it is that they're drinking. So their bodies have all of the physical functions of any normal human body. And, and then they go, they go on, and the same thing happens when two of these angels are sent to bring this judgment to Sodom, and we'll cover it when we get, when we get to that passage. But they get to Sodom, and, and Lot invites them into the house, offers them refreshment, offers them food. Uh, you, know, you have all this language that describes their physical bodies and the function of the physical body. So these fallen angels were able to change their, their, their body, their first domain, for, uh, and they abandoned that proper abode, which is their habitation or their dwelling place. The, uh, the Greek word is oiketerion. So it has to do their original house. O- oikos is the Greek word for house, and that's the first four letters in this word it comes from oikos. So they're leaving that first house, that, that first immaterial body, and they're going to a second one, which is a human one. And it says that God judges them. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. That's the same word zaphos that's used in Second Peter 2.4. This deep darkness that is, uh, and they're held there for the judgment of the great day. So there will be judgment on these fallen angels at the end of the millennial kingdom when they and their leader Satan are sent into the lake of fire. But there's a comparison that comes in the next verse, which is so very important. The sin of these angels is compared to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 reads, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, and that word in the Greek is a feminine plural, since they, that is the cities, in the same way as these. So the these is not talking about the cities. Uh, it is talking about the angels because it's a masculine plural. So the way this reads is just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since these cities, in the same way as those angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So it is saying that, that those in Sodom and Gomorrah are committing a sexual sin, and that sexual sin is an imitation of what these fallen angels did in terms of uh, the same type of sin, gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, for the, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, the strange flesh was same sex. It was homosexuality because that's exactly what is described when you get to uh, Genesis chapter 19. And then it is talking about the fact that uh, that the angels went after strange flesh. They were what? They were uh, uh, of an angelic body, immaterial body, a body of light, and they exchanged that for a human body. They want something different. So that is describing uh, the fact that this is a sexual relationship between the fallen angels and uh, human, t- taking human wives. And so then uh, Jude concludes by saying they're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So this, again, shows that they are a legal 
they're presented as legal evidence for the justice of God and the judgment of God. Now, these three passages, 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, and Jude, are all referring to this event that takes place back in Genesis. In Genesis 6, 4, we read there were giants, and the word there in the Hebrew is Nephilim. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So Moses is explaining this to the, to the Jews. And he says, in those days, that is in the time before the flood and also afterward. So it, it, it started a long time before the flood. It starts pretty far back because you have to have enough time for enough procreation to take place to produce enough offspring to where it begins to threaten the purity of the human gene pool. And the purpose for this invasion, as I pointed out, is that God had prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, the physical descent of the woman, would uh, defeat the seed of the serpent. And so Satan says, if I can just destroy the genetic purity of the human race so they're no longer human, there's some kind of a hybrid between, uh, between humans and angels, then this is going to destroy the purity and I can keep God from fulfilling his promise. Satan is always trying to keep God from fulfilling his promise. And so these fallen angels, they're sons of God. We've seen that that is a technical term, beneha Elohim, uh, that refers to angels. There is a popular systematic theology, been out now for 15 years or so, that is written by the president of a seminary out in, out in Phoenix. It's very popular to use this, and I've spot-checked him in several places. And, and although the guy is a, a you know, great, supposedly great scholar, he knows the original languages, he comes to this and says, well, the sons of God doesn't always refer to the angels. There's a place over in Deuteronomy where sons of, God, sons of the Lord refer to, to Israel. So you can't say it's always angels. But he didn't check his original language. In Deuteronomy, the passage is sons of Yahweh, not sons of Elohim. And it, that is a, that's a freshman error. And so it just, those kinds of things, mistakes, and it's still there. And I don't know how long it's, it's been since that came out. So it's just a misreading of the original. And we've studied it all the way through uh, the Old Testament where the B'nai Elim, B'nai Elohim, uh, these are various terms to describe the angels that are directly created uh, by God. And so it says, they came into the daughters of men, or in some translations, they took daughters of men. And some people have said, well, that indicates they took them by force. No, it doesn't. If you read the idiom throughout the Old Testament, when a man would would acquire maybe a better word would be, would, would get a wife. The language is he would take a wife. That's just the idiom. He would go get married. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he took her by force. It doesn't mean there's rape involved or, or anything like that. It just means that that was the idiom for a man would, would go and, and get a wife. And so 
Um, the sons of God came into the daughters of men or took daughters of men as wives, and they bore children to them. Now, these were not normal marriages. One thing I want to point out is there's a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the conditions at the time when he returns. And I believe that all of Matthew 24 is talking about the second coming. But there's this one verse where Jesus is comparing it to the time of Noah, and he says people will be um, marrying and giving in marriage, and they'll be eating and they'll be drinking, and and uh, the return comes upon them uh, like a thief in the night. So people say, ah, that's the rapture. No, it's not. Because it says, as in the days of Noah, they are marrying and giving in marriage. Well, what kind of marrying and giving in marriage was it in the time of Noah? A perverted marriage. A, 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 a marriage between demons and humans. And that's the kind of thing that you're going to see if you read the last part of Revelation. You're going to see what? We've studied this recently, Revelation chapter 12. Satan and the fallen angels are physically ejected from heaven and they come down to the earth and they're physically, uh, 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 they can be seen. They're, they're physically available to human beings and there's going to be interaction. Demons and humans together because God's bringing a judgment in the last half of the tribulation upon all of his creatures that have rebelled against him. Demons and humans, and they're all mixing it up together on the planet to try to establish his kingdom and prevent the Jews from uh, fulfilling God's promises. And so they're trying to kill all the Jews. And all of this is happening in the, in the second half of the tribulation. So the, the marrying and giving in marriage is an abnormal marrying and giving in marriage. So you have to be able to uh, read that uh, contextually and read it well. So they have offspring. These are the mighty men who were of old. These are the Nephilim, the giants. They're men of renown. In, in, in mythology, you have numerous cases in across the board, across the spectrum, of different polytheistic uh, religions where gods like Zeus or in the Canaanite religion El or in the Roman pantheon Jupiter and they uh, take on human form and they come down and in the mythologies they will often rape a woman or they will take a woman uh, and have sexual relations and they give birth to someone like Hercules who is a a uh, mythological individual who has great strength and power and performs mighty mighty feats and mighty deeds so that's what that's where it comes from there was an actual historical situation before the flood that is the kernel of truth behind a lot of that mythology now genesis 6 1 begins now it came about when men that is mankind began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. It's interesting, not a single gal is mentioned in Genesis six, uh, 5, when the, all the genealogies. And so people say, well, this is, uh, you know, the descendants of Seth versus the descendants of, um, of Cain. That doesn't work because you have daughters born on both sides. So there's four views that are set forth on this. The first view is that the sons of God are descendants of Seth and the daughters are the descendants of Cain. Now that doesn't really work. I'm going to go ahead and just summarize this real quick because we're short on time. Uh, that doesn't really work because you've got about three, 
four or five billion people on the planet, 10, 12, 14 generations living at the same time, leads to a population explosion on the planet. And with that pinning people, they're not going to be segregated into all the descendants of Seth and all the descendants of Cain. It just doesn't work out that way. And and neither does sons of God always refer to the descendants of of, uh, Seth versus Cain. Then the second view is that the term sons of God are kings, that is, rulers or judges who were called like Elohims. But that doesn't work either because that would just say that these are kings taking uh, daughters of men. That would be just the common, common women and that somehow that is this heinous sin. But that's been going on ever since. That's gone on in every culture known to man where you have uh, politically powerful men who take uh, those who are uh, have no power, no base, but they just uh, are the object of the powerful man's lust, and they take them into their harem. So that that's not anything unique. The third view, which is the view that I hold and that most uh, biblically sound scholars hold, although there's a few that would really get mad at me for saying that, uh, the sons of God are fallen angels and the daughters are human women because everywhere that word Benehi Elohim is used elsewhere in Scripture, it always means angels. You just can't get around that. Uh, fourth, the sons of God referring to demon-possessed tyrants and the daughters are human women. The problem with that view is that it do- would not necessarily mess up the gene pool. So the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Again, this is not taking by force. And this phrase, B'nai Ha Elohim, sometimes it's just B'nai Elohim, sometimes it's B'nai Elim, which is a short form of Elohim. It's always a term for angelic creation, holy and and fallen, elect or fallen. You have all the sons of God coming before a God in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and following, and Job chapter 2, verses 1 and following, and Satan is among them. So it's both de- demons and elect angels. So those are the three interpretations, and the one that, that the only one that really has anything solid behind it is the term sons, uh, sons of God. So I'm going to skip ahead because I have some other uh, explanations here. And then we're going to come back to uh, one of the objections in the angelic view, and that is uh, Matthew 22, uh, 30, which says, For in the, resur- in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Nothing there talks about uh, the situation in Genesis 6. Uh, the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage at the time Jesus is speaking. That's one way to look at it. But they neither marry or are given in marriage in their original estate. But they have left their original estate according to Jude, uh, chapter, Jude verse, verse 6. And uh, Jesus says in Mark 12, 24 to 25, uh, you're mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So it's talking about angels in heaven and what's characteristic of them, not this situation of these who have left uh, their first estate. Also, it's the same thing 
talked about in Luke 20, 34 to 36. Job 1, 6, I mentioned a minute ago, sons of God refers to all of the angels. Job 2, 1 refers to all the angels. Job 38, 7, sons of God refers to all of the angels. And then these various terms like B'nai Elim in Psalm 29, 1 and Psalm 89, 6, these are all referring to the all of the angels. So this is very important to understand that, and their offspring are these Nephilim, and here's the point. I changed this from when I did this before because I think I finally am saying this correctly. All Nephilim are giants. The word Nephilim doesn't have a technical meaning. It's just a word that means giants are monsters. It's not a term that means hybrid between demons and humans. It doesn't mean that. It's not a technical term. A lot of people say, well, if you make it a technical term, then you're going to have a problem in Numbers 13. It's just a term that means, means giants. So all Nephilim are giants, but not all giants are the product of a demon-human sexual union, because you have giants after the, after the flood. You have giants, Goliath is a giant, and there were the sons of Anak who were giants. We'll study them a little bit when we get into that first chapter of Judges on Tuesday night. So Numbers 13.33, some of the spies who go into the land, all but two of them are scared, and they see these giants, the sons of Anak. We saw the Nephilim. That's what it says in the, in the original. So people say, ah, they, 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 they've got to be the same because Nephilim means a hybrid between demons and humans. No, it doesn't. You're just reading that into the text. The word means uh, uh, giants. And so, not, so all Nephilim are giants, but not all giants are uh, the result of a union between uh, demons and and humans. So that's what we're talking about. And God judges those angels. That God judges those angels in Second Peter chapter two. And this is so serious because of its devastating consequences it could have had for the human race and the destruction of God's plan of salvation. And so they are judged harshly. Now, next time we're going to come back and we're going to look at the next example, which is connected to it, which is the judgment, judgment of the flood. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to look at the certainty of your judgment, that even though we look at things, we think, well, Lord, why don't you judge those people? And yet you are already working. Your judgment isn't idle. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean we don't, it's not happening or it's not being worked out. And as we'll see when we get to chapter 3, time with you is different than time with us. And uh, it's speeding right along as far as you're concerned, but with us it seems to drag on. Well, Father, we trust you to correctly and judicially handle all of these situations of injustice, and we know that you will because, as Abraham put it, will not the God uh, of all the earth do what is right? Will not a just God do what is right? And you will, and we trust you for that. Thank you for what we've learned today because it gives us comfort when we see injustice to know that you will make all things right. In Christ's name, amen.